This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Yannick Mania. And I'm Luca Lidizmeble. And our topic this week is... My first film photography experiences. Awesome. But first, you have some follow-up. Yes, I do. So, the I will start with a quick item related to our last episode, so the game of the year 2022. Uh, one of the games I mentioned, Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order, is currently available for free part of the monthly PSN Plus games. So, again, with all of the things I've said in the previous two Game of the Year episodes about this game, if you were curious and you don't want to buy it, and you are a PSN Plus subscriber... It's time for you to go authorize it in your own account before the end of the month because it is part of the free games in January. So if you listen to my voice in the future and it's not January 2023, sucks to be you. And But if you're listening close to the release, go download it now. Important note for our listeners is that it is both the PS4 version and the PS5 version, which is available through PS Plus. Uh, so... Both people get to party, uh, which is not always the case. Uh, certain games, they've only given like the PS4 version, and you still had right. to go out and buy the PS5 version. So it's nice that they gave a hybrid version for this. And I think like huh. uh, Yakuza 7 previously, they gave only the PS5 version, even though it's a game that's available on both. So it, it, it's weird. It varies from game to game. But this time, it was hybrid, so that was really nice. And I did redeem it on my account. So maybe if I have some spare time at some point, uh, I can play through that. Yeah, uh, I'll have to look uh, now that you mentioned this because for me it is authorized because I bought it. So I'm not sure if I get the PS5 version for free. It's kind of unclear. If you use the app on your phone, you are able to change the SKU to the PS5 version and you should be able to go redeem it if you don't already own it. Um, I don't know what the free upgrade story is for Jedi Fallen Order. I don't know if it was a free upgrade or a paid upgrade. So you might just have it automatically already. I'm not sure. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think you're correct because it does say game only available on PS5 right now and I cannot do download on console when I change SKU. Yeah. So, interesting. Okay, I didn't know this. I I knew that certain games were PS5 or PS4 only in the past and I would authorize them, but I didn't look for this one. So, I guess I'll have uh, to maybe come back when there's a follow-up button to make sure that it's on my account, something like that. Next up, it's regarding episode 195, a lock screen jump scare, where I share my thoughts about the iPhone 14 Pro. And friend of the show Richard sent questions about third-party camera apps. Their main questions was about, about using the iPad as a remote viewfinder for the phone camera app, which is a workflow that makes sense, but it's the first time I hear somebody asking for it, uh, personally speaking. So I don't really know of any app that does this. For sure, the Apple's own camera app does it via the watch. So that was a workflow I was aware and that we even used during the Christmas uh, hiatus because I had family members and we wanted to take some photos in front of our Christmas tree. Uh, I also look and played... Uh, just before recording this episode, uh, and I lied. One of my favorite third-party camera app does it too using a watch app they produce. One thing I've realized though that that is that the viewfinder reliability is not so great. So sometimes I would just lose the video stream, but when I would press the shutter to record a photo, it would be pretty instant. So sadly, Richard, I don't really know of apps that does that with 
an iPad app and an iPhone app. But if you find something, please send us another feedback item because you're making me quite curious about that. I remember fairly early on in the iPad lifespan, there were a lot of video camera apps that did this uh, because uh, iPads were being used on sets as remote viewfinders for uh, phones and stuff like that. Right. Uh, so I've, I've seen those, but for photos, that's a lot rarer. And I haven't seen anything like within the last 10 years or so that would match that. But it right. wouldn't surprise me if it was out there. It's just I don't know about it because I haven't used a third-party camera app in 10 years. So, Speaking of using a third-party uh, camera app, one thing I would like to mention about my own usage of Alight is that with the addition of lock, lock screen widget, it, you're able to get the similar-ish uh, experience to the Apple camera button. Uh, the reason I bring this up is it was something that you said to, uh, to them, uh, that you haven't had any experience with third party apps because since the addition of the camera button on the lock screen, you, Yannick, were not using anything else. Uh, the configuration I have right now on my lock screen is I, let me look again, but I have three widgets. I have calendar and the two other ones are for the main lens. Opening iLight using the main lens or opening iLight using the telephoto lens. So that's where I got more uh, usage of a third-party camera app because iLight added lock screen widgets. Is that it? Yes, it is. So I guess we'll jump in my, to my main topic. So as I mentioned in the intro, uh, this week's topic is back to photography but with a twist. Earlier this year, I decided to dabble into film photography earlier this year the year just started <laughs> yeah 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 come on give me a break it's january 12th so i can say earlier this year t- talking about the past few months fair enough but that's okay i expect you to give me tough love but then speaking of love it is something i felt in love with this week i want to bring you with me through the last five months of my journey into film photography, I want to discuss hardware. It wouldn't be a limitable show if we didn't discuss of hardware. I want to discuss film stocks. I want to discuss why did I decide to start shooting film in 2022 and what 2023 holds for me. Because you had a surplus of money. Uh, oh, come on. <laughs> no. Yeah, no. I was about to say yes, but we'll talk about We'll talk that about your later. film inventory later. Yeah. 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 You're, you're kind of teasing my outro already. So uh, let's keep that for later. So first, let's talk about the journey to get to uh, film photography. And it wouldn't be a surprise to our listener that 2022 has been a photographic year for me. It has been a yearly theme. It is, again, I'm still considering myself just a bit in 2022. I think it's the third or fourth episode in the last 14 months. It's the fourth episode about photography from me uh, in the last 14 months. So since the fall of 2021. And I don't want to repeat too much of what I've already said in the previous episodes, but you know, the gist of it is I made it my main hobby for this year, and that's not going to change soon. Part of making it my main hobby, it meant that I did consume and I still consumes a lot of content, especially YouTube videos. And after watching a shit ton of videos for a couple of months, you can imagine that the algorithm started to recommend 
even more mm-hmm. photographic photography team content and it started to dabble or to send me nudge about film photography that even increased to another level when i started to watch fuji film themed content and you know that started about a year ago when i first had the fujifilm x100s on loan from your dad before buying it from him again uh the fujifilm saga is also another episode this year so again uh please go into our back catalog of episodes if you're curious to hear about my other photography sagas of the 2022 i'll also add that for people who are not super uh up to date on photography youtube the Fujifilm X100V, which is the updated model of the camera right. that you have, is like the hot topic on f- photography YouTube right now that everyone right. is talking about. They're even putting the hashtag Fujifilm X100V into videos that have nothing to do with it just for the algorithm. <laughs> really? Oh, yes. I didn't didn't realize that. <laughs> I'm seeing it in like Canon point and shoots as well. So it's like, okay. right. I guess I can do a, a quick tangent about uh, the popularity of the X100V. I think the X100 series of cameras did get a quite following in the past few years. And the main problem with the, uh, the, the V version, so the fifth iteration of this camera, is that it showed up at launch in 2020? 2021? I forgot exactly when it got launched, but during the pandemic, a couple of people were able to buy them and then they disappeared. If I recall correctly, and I'm not mixing my Fujifilm cameras, they even stopped producing them during the pandemic and then restarted. Uh, I remember I, some echoes about that. Uh, but yeah, for, uh, for a mirrorless camera, this has been pretty popular. And with me owning, uh, the second generation with the S, uh, I can understand why, because I cannot imagine what a nicer version of this camera can be. Uh, and it's good for me that I don't know because that could be dangerous, <laughs> but end of digression. On top of watching a lot of general photography team content and Fujifilm team content, uh, this literally uh, allowed me to have dedicated recommendation about film photography. And as a curious mind, that's when I decided, you know what, like, I know what film photography is, but I never really done it. So let's see what people on YouTube has to say about it. So I started to get familiar with it through experiencing it with others. And I would like to send two recommendations to YouTube channels that help me a lot experience film photography through the eyes and the camera of others. The first one is named Analog Resurgence by a fellow Canadian named Noah. My understanding of his channel, Analog Resurgence, is that it started maybe a year, 18 months, just before the pandemic, so maybe late 2018 early 2019 and at beginning it was really focused on teaching the basis of film photography so as somebody that was quite curious about that it was really uh short i think it was like most of his videos are about like 10 minutes like in the 10 minute range so they're not too long they're not too short uh and they're really well made and during the pandemic, he did a lot of film stock reviews. So he would just go shoot films and then give his opinion about what he thinks about the render, the image rendering that he provides and things like that. So for a newbie that I was, and I kind of still am on some fashion, his content was pretty educational. 
The second channel I want to mention is called Grainy Days by Jason Kummerfeld. And Jason is quite well known in the YouTube film photography community because the content he produced is so funny and has its own rhythm, I could say. In the last few months, I literally binge watch most of his YouTube channel. I think he started again maybe three or four years ago a bit. I think maybe two years before the pandemic, so it will be five years at this point. And throughout his number, I don't recall it and take a note of that official count of videos on the channel i think i didn't watch maybe three or four at this point uh some of his videos are about fix film stock reviews gear reviews Gary bought but it is more generally focused into photographing weird stuff in california including abandoned buildings and going into nature going on through road trips doing camping trips and travel trips so that type of video mixed with mixed with film photography ways to kind of improve or just like by experiencing his own type of artistic expression through film uh you can improve your creative muscle and for sure uh jason has a quite the dry humor so if you like it it is pretty funny but you've been warned that the humor sometimes might be not to everybody's taste so thanks to the youtube algorithm i was quite film curious even before trying it and that will be the first push to get me to ever try it. And I think the second push came from being in the presence of folks doing it in this year. As I discussed in previous episode, I've added a lot of photo outings in 22 compared to what I started to do uh, in 2021. And most of, uh, most of them were organized by a local store named uh, Gosselin Photo here in Montreal and in a lot of big cities in Quebec. I've attended a lot of their photo outings organized by their Brassard location, which is a suburb near Montreal, which I meant I spent a lot of times with their great photo instructor named AJ Gentile. And even if he is a sunny person at the, these days, he still makes sure to have one film camera with him because he's a big film photographer. Which meant that when he would talk about cameras generally, he would be able to just make comparison between analog and digital cameras about the art of film photography while also working on your composition techniques and things like that so he has been practicing photography for i think 30 years at this point which meant that he's pretty quite passionate about it and it shows so you can imagine that at that point spending a couple of weekends here and there with somebody quite passionate you can imagine that that passion rubbed off me and on top of that, to kind of give me the push, he was kind enough to loan me two Minolta film cameras to allow me to experience and to discover what I like with those two types of bodies because the two cameras he shared are quite different. But more on that one when we'll talk about hardware. So at that point, we had after work when I wanted to turn my brain off i would watch a lot of videos and when i wanted to go out of the uh, out of the house to get some fresh air to have fun to meet other people i spent a lot of time doing photo outings which meant uh being in the presence of people doing analog photography meant that by the end of the summer i had the itch like i could not not try <laughs> it so it meant that i did that but how do you start to shoot film? 
2022-2023. And for me, somebody that had no background in it, that had nobody, like nobody close to me, like family members and things like that, that could end me down all cameras, it is it was in the end quite simple and I thought it wouldn't be. So I went to my local local photo store and I bought one of the cheap reusable disposable camera made by Armin Technology called the Armin Reusable Camera. If you've ever been in the presence or any or if you are familiar with any disposable film camera, you might be familiar with this Armin Reusable Camera. The main difference with from uh, with by it compared to other disposable camera is this one has an opening film back, allowing you to change the roll of film it, that it is in it, and especially load a new one when the one that's currently in it is fully exposed. So it's not shoot once and then dispose while dropping it at the lab to get developed. While we're on the topic of cheap disposable camera. I invite you next time that you're in your local photo store, go look at their film section. Because while it might be small, I'm quite sure that they'll have a range of those either disposable cameras or cheap reusable film cameras. Those are gaining in popularity in the recent years and companies like Fuji and Kodak and Armin are starting to produce them in greater number. A good example of that is the Kodak Ektar H35, which is a half-frame camera. As its name suggests, half-frame means it shoots half-frame, so not the full 34 by 24 by 36, excuse me, millimeter area, but the 17 by 24 millimeter area, which means that on a roll of 36 exposition, you get 72. So. Yannick did hint that film is not cheap nowadays, so it means more, more, more exposition on the same length of film. The main reason I decided to buy the Armin reusable camera was that it, that it was a bit cheaper than the other cameras at the store. And the reason for that was that it included two roll of Kentmare, which is a brand a brand of black and white film that is made by Armand Technology. Now equipped with this camera, I could start experimenting with film photography. Which brings me to the reason of why would somebody shoot on film in this day and age. And that's kind of my own way of saying what do what do I like about film photography. And I've been reflecting on that question for the past few weeks in preparation for the new year, and of course, for this episode. And in the end, I came with, I came up with four reasons that explains why I fell in love with film photography. The first reason is named the rendering aesthetics. Film render lights, renders light captured differently than a digital sensor. The color are not rendered like they look in real life or what you would expect a color to be like. You say a blue is a blue and the digital sensor, they've been optimized to render it as perfect as it could be. Whereas with film, they might decide to be more on this shade of blue uh, versus another just by the chemistry used on them. They don't have this... I, I use the word cleanness in my notes, but 
it's really like it's not precise and that's on purpose all on top of that we can talk about the contrast between the highlights and the shadows that is also different and that that is more reflecting which apply also to color film but also can be applied to film uh to black and white film and those reacts differently to what you can do uh in a, a digital camera for sure in the end a lot of those decision or those baked effect let's put it this way can be done in post processing but the magic with film is that you don't have to care about this because the decision is just made for you when you put a film roll in your camera Lastly, on the rendering aesthetics, there's something you can ignore. You cannot ignore isn't, and it is called the grain. So, because it is a chemistry reaction that happens, there is this notion of grain of particles that shows up in your image that a lot of people tend to compare with the sensor noise that you would get when you would use, uh, uh, ISO setting on your digital camera. And I, I do believe that they don't render the same way. They don't have the same aesthetic. So A, they're, A, they're not the same thing. And B, they are not rendered the same. So don't say that grain equals noise because they're two different things. And I think they make for this different rendering aesthetics. I will add a super nitpicky caveat, which is that I feel like CCD sensor noise is a lot closer to film grain than CMOS sensor noise if you're going digital. But I I understand there's still a difference, but I think it's a lot closer in the CCD world than it is in the modern sensor world. Uh, I think you're correct. Uh, And I think that's why CCD cameras are kind of regaining in popularity these days as a replacement to do analog photography because of the prices of film yeah uh, i've been shooting a lot of 400 iso and that's like old school mid 2000s 400 iso and right. uh, the, the noise is very different from what i'm used to on my sony let's say oh yeah f- uh, for sure and again you, you did mention that you would use a different sensor technology mm-hmm. so but people would tend to compare the noise with the grain and say they're the same thing but again let's not forget when you bump up or lower your ISO, you're more or less amplifying or diminishing a digital signal. So that's quite different than just yeah. particles falling and moving because they've been excited by rays, uh, which there's, in my opinion, more randomness to it compared to what a sensor can do. And there's also just more of a potential, well, it, with film photography in general, of just like weird accidents causing completely fucked up shit to happen and i'm sure we'll talk about some of those later but yes uh you're correct uh that can happen um and we'll talk about it quite soon enough uh, because my next reason is called the imperfect if you begin your photography film photography journey with the assumption that you can have as sharp of an image as with your latest Sony camera that you spend $3,000 on the body and then $3,000 on your G Master lens because it's also super expensive, I think you've knocked on the wrong door. Analog photography and film embraces the imperfect, throws the absolute image sharpness out the window, and it's not because it cannot achieve it. I think it can with good hardware that you can still find but inherently speaking a lot of its tech has stopped improving 
in the late 90s. So we did have more uh, technology advances for, let's say, lenses, but those never came to film equipment because it happened like 10, 15, 20 years after. But I think there's a charm to that imperfection with having less precision, if I put it in scare quotes, because that's not really true, but I think that's describe the feeling I have here than a digital sensor. Again, you can get close to it with old lenses on new bodies. But again, I think both the old or the earlier lens technology mixed with how the film renders light brings for this imperfect image and embracing the imperfection. My third reason is named slowing down and or too slow down. And this is quite a trend that started for me this year. Uh, and it started on a digital body with the Fujifilm X100S. Whether it was because of its slow autofocus speed or just because I wanted to focus myself, slowing my photography down allowed me to better take in the location that I am shooting currently. And I feel that this slowing down process happens even more with film, especially when you use older cameras because they require you to do more manual operation. So a fully manual bodies will require to uh, add more operation to just shoot one exposition. First, all film cameras, whatever they are point and shoot to a SLR, they need you to load the film into them. Uh, certain s- certain types, so s- some of them will uh, require more operations, like a manual SLR, because they don't have a auto winding mechanism. But again, even then, you need to open a door, put the uh, put the roll in it, pull the lever to a spot, or tuck a lever in a spot, and then start advancing. Uh, the film. On top of that, when you shoot, you are required to advance the film uh, in most cameras. Again, like I ignore point and shoot because even if I used a lot of point and shoots, and we'll see that later, but advancing the film, rewinding the film inside the canister, removing and putting the film, and last but not least, manually focusing means that you do have an experience that requires more step and that forces you to slow down. So all of these different steps make you spend time with the tool that is the camera. But something that I try to realize, it's not impeding me. It just allows me to be like, wait, okay, I need to do this. Wait a sec. What I am looking at, is it something I really want to shoot or do I want to compose it this way? Uh, so taking a bit more time preparing the camera allowed me to reflect into what I was trying to shoot. Film bodies inherently, I think, are a more tactile process. And that's something I do love. Uh, I guess you can say it's my vi- vinyl, vinyl moment at this point. Uh, we already used I that episode to... title. You can't use it again. I... No, no, I know. I know I'm not trying to do that. You can use anything else, but... Uh, that would be my real vinyl moment, to be honest, here, even if I use it in the past. Last but not least, the fourth and last reason is name a different experience. And I say that first because it 
it encompasses all the all three other reasons. But before last August, I never shot an image on film. I've been practicing photography more on in the past year or so, but on and off for the last 15 years. And all of those years were shot with digital cameras, whether they are point and shoots, DSLRs, or more recently, mirrorless bodies. My photographic life was never really on film. So in the end, film was unknown. Film is different. Even if it's getting a known commodity now, for me, five months in, I still believe there's an inner charm to this difference, to this unknown, and this sense that everything is the same, yet also quite different, is why I call it a different experience. And, and that concludes more or less the four reasons why I like to do film photography in the recent months. I do have a quick aside about the new an hyperbole I just used. Um, I don't want to. I think any can, can I mention that we are like kids of the nineties. So we, I am born in uh, in the early nineties, which meant that my teenage year happened during the film to like the analog to digital transition of the late nineties to the early two thousands. My parents were never big into photography. So as a kid that was, let's say, six, seven, eight years old, I was not exposed to, uh, to it, uh, at that age. For sure, in the early nineties, even like, let's say, 96, 97, 98, when I was growing up, that was the tech that was around and that was the cheap tech that was around compared to digital cameras. So, I'm pretty confident that I have used reusable cameras in the past, but you know what? I don't really remember it, especially compared to the memory I have with digital cameras that started in my teenage years. So when I say I never really shot on film before August 22, it's it's mostly true, but it's kind of a a bit of kind of a lie at the same time. It was not significant usage. Agreed. Though I have a lovely anecdote to back it up. Uh, <laughs> so, to, to back it up, that's kind of a lie. So, so uh, this happened more or less in September. I think it was a couple of weeks after I started to take uh, film photography a bit more seriously, or I wanted it to be... I say seriously, but I, I, I should correct myself and say more like I'm doing a bit more uh, film photography, uh, let's say like a 60-40 percentage. Uh, so I was talking about my recent photographic activities with my mom and she was kind of one day asking, I was one day asking, like, I remembered we used to have a point and shoot that was with film. So I was like, is it still around? And, um, my mom has a tendency to keep old tech around or old shit around. So a good example is I know where our VHS player is. It's not plugged into the TV. Don't get me wrong. She's not that bad, but <laughs> she still has it. So, uh, sadly for me and to my surprise, uh, this point and shoot just disappeared in the past. I don't know, but at a certain moment in time in the past 15, 20 years, it disappeared. But my inquiry about this camera reminded her that she had two rolls of exposed film, but never develop in her bedside table. She's like, Oh yeah, look, I have film. I'm like, <laughs> So what's on it? It's like, I don't remember, but my guess is it's about 20 years old, give or take. So funny story. She was about right. It was officially 19 years old. 
uh, because I brought those two roles to my lab to have them developed, which is pretty interesting because it was, let's think about it, film with, yes, chemicals that has been exposed to light 19 years ago, but never developed so they can be frozen in time. Let's put it this way, if I simplify the the development process. And the photos were just totally fine. Like, not put in the fridge, not a thing, just bedside table inside and my parent never had DC up until I think two years ago so it would be have the temperature fluctuation of our lovely Quebec weather <laughs> uh, which means about from about like 17 20 degrees to 35 40 during the winter uh, during the summer because no AC uh, and yes those photos were 19 years old. They were from literally the summer before I started uh, high school. Is m- my recollection and hers when we look at the photos, uh, which meant that it was from 2002, uh, 2003, excuse me. Uh, and some of them, they may be like, you know, it was kind of a, they were slowly slowing down their usage of it. So maybe certain photos were end of a family trip in 2003, couple of pictures throughout 2003, 2004. And then I don't know what they've done after because there was those two roles that either, I guess, they developed more roles and forgot about those two or then just, excuse me, stop using film cameras. Uh, because I do remember, and I still don't have it anymore, I don't, I don't have it anymore, but my first ever digital camera was bought by me around that time. Was, uh, it was a cheap point and shoot from Kodak that was, I think, two megapixel, three megapixel. Oh. Yeah. Uh, and my recollection is that it was bought in 2003, 2004. So that would explain why possibly those were their last film roles that they shot but yeah so and uh last but not least when i was looking at the photos i realized that there was cat photos and <laughs> funny blurry cat photos because i was literally or i say i was but it could be my brother uh but my assumption is that it was taken by kids because the photos were literally two oh, 10 centimeters away from my cat's face so <laughs> Rest in peace, cat face. Um, so, so yeah, so that's why I say that, uh, like for, for the following section of this episode, when I said I never shot film before 2022, you can say that it's a bit romanticized for the sake of this episode. But, uh, this whole anecdote, even like me going through the F through it, was quite entertaining. It's like, I remember just going to the lab and telling them, yeah, yeah. Like, at first, the person at the lab, she, she was like, do you mean it's expired film that you shot? Or, no, I was like, no, no, no. It's film that somebody forgot to develop for 20 years. I'm like, oh, okay. That's okay. That doesn't change anything. So, so yeah. So that was that. Technology changes, but humanity's desire to take bad cat photos is eternal. Oh, I, I thought you were saying, uh, like, humanity's laziness didn't change, which no. would also apply to that. <laughs> uh, I guess I can say it too, because I'm also quite bad at not developing my film, but just, uh, with ca- digital cameras to just do some post-processing or just photo management. When I, I processed I'm... my uh, my Christmas photos this year, the night of the Christmas party, uh, I got a comment from my dad saying, oh, good, you didn't do it because you yourself and sit on it for like six months or whatever. 
Oh, <laughs> I'm not sure if I should be happy that I'm used as an example for this. <laughs> Though I like to know that it is funny because now I have an excuse when I shoot on film because it's like, oh, it's you know, it's on film. I have to go put uh, to I go I have to go drop the roles at the lab. Procrastination the is part of the process. Yeah, which is funny because um, I went to drop the Christmas rolls pretty early. Uh, got the scan pretty fast too. Uh, but again, I'm procrastinating adding them in my process. Of course. Uh, and then my mom is asking about the photos because funnily enough, uh, one of the group photos we took with the iPhone was kind of lackluster compared to the one I took on film. Uh, and even me, I'm like surprised that the photo didn't render really well on the phone. I, it kind of didn't. It was on a tripod. Again, that was the experience I was mentioning in the follow-up where we were, Tony was using the watch and it just did a bad uh, exposition decision, which meant that the light from the windows were like f- well exposed, but our faces like ISO through the roof and we looked like paintings inside like in the morning. So that was weird. I, I watched an MKBHD video about that today, actually. <laughs> Oh, uh, is it his video about... Uh, What's wrong with the iPhone camera or yes. whatever it's called? Yeah, th- that was really funny because uh, MKBHD does a yearly, like, uh, well, he does two things. He does yearly awards for the best camera, and he also right. does uh, a yearly sort of competition between all of the phones where everyone on Twitter blind tests these photos of different cameras and scientifically try to determine which is the camera that... Uh, people find the images most pleasing of and the iphone keeps getting knocked out in the first round <laughs> <laughs> so uh th- there was this entire video which was like why is it getting knocked out in the first round and there's this whole thing where uh b- basically it's like so much of these phone cameras is software that sometimes there are stylistic decisions that are made uh that people don't agree with and that seems to be what's going on with the iphone camera for face lighting in particular right and the the main reason he did this video too was i i i didn't see the comments but when he did the intro in the video and he mentioned like why did you make the iphone win for four years in a row in your smartphone awards as best camera on a smartphone and it never wins the blind (laughs) test And I could just read and like imagine the comments on his video. Like, why you make the iPhone win? It sucks. It never wins a blind test. This other phone is better. So, yeah. Sometimes I'm happy that I'm not a YouTuber. Sometimes. Okay. So, just a quick note. For the next few sections, please remind yourself of the four reasons. The rendering aesthetics. The imperfect slowing down and a different experience because when we'll talk about hardware and then film stocks those will come back again in the hardware section that's where we'll talk about tech a bit because uh we'll talk about cameras and i have five cameras to talk about that hot new Uh, 1978 tech um you'll have to age it a bit but more on that later aren't the minolta's 70s Cameras? You shall see. Um, so let's go in order of them coming into my own presence slash ownership. So as I mentioned, I started with the Armin reusable camera, which is the first camera I bought. Uh, I bring it up again to just talk about its specs because, as I mentioned, it's pretty easy to get. 
and um, it's pretty lackluster. It has a 31 millimeter fixed lens, fixed aperture at f10, and a single shutter speed of one one hundred twentieth of a second. It I has... didn't realize any of that when you showed me that camera, but that's actually pretty amazing. <laughs> It has no focus mechanism, meaning that it's focus-free. Everything from one meter to infinity will be in focus. And I put three asterisks next to the word <laughs> focus because the lens is made of plastics and it means that it's cheap because it's plastic and not glass or yes. Uh, and that the middle section of your frame is where the lens is more or less sharp. Uh, if you look at pictures and we'll see pictures soon uh, I can tell you and I'll bring it back again that the Kent Mayer photo we'll uh, discuss uh, in the few, in the film stock section is taken with this camera and center the photo is in focus or is sharp I should say not in focus uh, and the rest is a blurry mess <laughs> it's not too bad for uh for a certain region but the especially the region below a meter it's a blurry mess while it's a shitty camera, I do like the shitty look it gives, the shitty vibes it gives. And nowadays I do have other cameras, but I plan to keep using it for the fun of it. I think it's cheap. Um, the fixed aperture at F10 makes it less than ideal for non-sunny days. It does have a flash that is powered with a AAA battery. So when needed, you can do flash photography if that's your jam. Uh, and I discovered that it is becoming my gem because oh, no. inside photography with film requires a lot of light. I guess that's the best way to say it. Uh, but yeah, so uh, I've shot this body with black and white col- film and color film. So I have an experience of both. But again, I don't plan to put too much expensive film on it because again... Uh, it's pretty cheap, so I want to uh, take advantage of more expensive operational film and their uh, professional quality to uh, put them into more, uh, more quote-unquote powerful or more uh, flexible bodies than the Armin reusable camera. Uh, all of this is say, though, that I think it's an amazing toy for... It was $50, I think? $45 with two rolls of film and uh, the Kentmare Pan 400 is worth about all the prices I'll give in this video Canadian dollar don't forget but uh, I think a rolls of Kentmare 400 in 35 minutes is about 7 $8 worst case $10 so pretty cheap for what it is next up the Canon SureShot Multi-Tele so it adds a point and shoot from 1988, which, without giving my official birth year, is older than me. Uh, and this also, this camera is also known uh, by two other names, depending whether you are from the Japanese market or the Asian market or the... No, it's Japanese market because the other market where it has a different name is Europe, Middle East, and Asia. So in Japan, this camera is called is known as a Canon Autoboy Tele 6. I love that name. Oh, yeah, it's kind of weird. Uh, I love it, but it's so weird at the same time. Um, and the fact that this camera has three names reminds me of our conversation yes, about your Canon Xs. Yes, I was Canon just about Xs. to say... <laughs> 
<laughs> yes. And in AMEA, uh, you might know this camera as the Canon Prima Tele, which Prima Tele is like as a good ring and it's pretty short than the Sure Shot Multi Tele. The main twist that this point and sh- this 80s or ladies point and shoot camera has is it has two fixed focal length. 35 millimeters at f 3.5 and 60 millimeters at f 5.6. You could in 88 and 89 when it got released, you could get an optional teleconverter to go as high as 75 millimeters. Woo! See, it's exactly like an iPhone. Uh, kinda. <laughs> That's a primitive iPhone. Like, I don't forget the iPhone has been like. 28 20 no 24 26 so it's it's less wide than an iphone but for sure like it can remind remind you of the iphone 10 with this main and a telephoto camera that was around 60 75 millimeter focal length another fun aspect of this camera is that it offer a frame capability so as I mentioned in the intro, I was talking about the cheap uh, Kodak Ektar H35. More or less, you can get more exposure out of your film. Uh, and that's something I'll be uh, experimenting with this year. Uh, the anecdote with this camera is I A, got it for free, and B, it came from a gift from a fan of mine. Um, so again... Kind of similar to the anecdote with my mom, where I was not shutting up about photography. Uh, that's a kind of a recurring trend. I was talking to her about that, and she's like, you know what? I used to shoot film uh, during my teenage year. So I remember that I have a film camera. Do you want it? Um, and I forgot if she if it was this friend or another friend, but she was like, maybe at worst case scenario, like if I ask it back, are you willing to give it back? I was like, for sure. Like, if you lend me and I'll take care of it, like, I don't care. Uh, but sadly, in the end, she tried to find it in her stuff, but couldn't get all of it. Uh, and when she was looking for it in her stuff at her parents' place, uh, she was having a similar conversation with her mom about that. And her mom was like, hey, your granddad, talking about her own dad, had this camera, the SureShot Multitilly, that I have and I don't know what to do with it. And I was about to throw it out. I don't think it like literally threw out, but it was in the plans of like shit I need to get rid of in my own house. So my friend was like, can we offer it to Luco? And her mom was like, sure. So that's how I ended up with this uh, Canon SureShot multi-tilly. And it's pretty fun because uh, the way the strap works is kind of, it holds down. So it's uh, it's attached to the side of the camera, not from like... The, the both points on, on the right side of it. So it really, uh, is held in portrait orientation. Um, and it's pretty cool. And I look like a dork when I add it at friends party, but I loved it. Uh, so it was really good just to have as a camera laying there. The two, uh, focal lengths were pretty useful, especially, uh, the other example. The other place I used the 60 meter was when we went apple picking. So you have either a nephew or niece or Tony in the top of a ladder of a of an apple tree. So zoom just a bit. It was perfect for composition and for framing purposes. So at that point, that's where my journey started. And then I kind of realized that I wanted to have a SLR. 
I have my my Nikon D5000 and I'm used to have manual focus on manual settings for everything and whether I'm using aperture priority or shutter priority I like to set certain settings whether usually I'm an aperture priority person so I was in the urge to get an SLR which would allow me to set the parameters of my camera on my own and that's if you recall when I was talking about one of the photo instructor that's when I received two Minolta cameras and the first one uh, an SLR model called the SRT 101 uh, is an old boy uh, Yannick you were saying the 70s uh, officially launched in 66 oh, the shit. SRT 101 uh, I don't know when the model I got is from because the SRT 101 was produced for 10 years uh, my research on the web says 75 76 people doesn't seem clear so don't quote me on that but a lot of people have mentioned that Minolta sold the SRT 101 for 10 years and a lot of people are pretty clear that it was launched in 66. It is a fully mechanical camera, so the shutter operation doesn't require a battery. The battery is only for the light meter. It has shutter speed from the ball mode, so it's a, you press it down, it sticks open up to 1 1,000 of a second, so pretty flexible uh, in daylight photography, especially if you have a fast uh, film loaded. Uh, it was loaned with the Minolta MC Rockcore PF 50mm f1.7, so pretty fast lens too. And I really, really enjoyed this camera. Uh, and I had a lot of, uh, again, I had a lot of manual settings, so I could s set my settings the way I wanted. I did a lot of long exposition with, with Yannick <laughs> in my presence. Uh, I also, uh, one of the capabilities I use for that is it has a mirror lockup. So in low light mode and with long exposition to lower the shake of the camera on the tripod, it was nice to lock the mirror up. Um, and for a couple of weeks, I had this camera with me a lot of the time. And because one thing I realized is because it's fully mechanical, it makes a lot of noises when it's operated. Yep. And I love it. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. Like when the shutter shutters, you hear it. Like it's clunk clunk. Like it's not click click. Uh, when the mirror moves up and down and the shutter operates, like it is a noisy camera and it has so much of a charm. It has a, it's also a pretty chunky camera too. Uh, even if it looks small, it's made of metal. It's full of metal parts in it and you don't realize that it is pretty heavy. But just to give you a perspective, it was alone, right? Uh, but I love this camera so much that A, I borrowed one of Yannick's Minolta cameras that he adapts for his Sony mirrorless. A lens, not a camera. Yes. Sorry. I, I, you're correct. A lens. Uh, which was a uh, Minolta 28 millimeter. Uh, but I was kind of like planning to buy my own body at some point, kind of. Uh, but I bought lenses for myself before buying a body. So I ended up buying two lenses when I saw a good deal uh, at Black Friday from a somewhat local. I think this person lives in Toronto. 
and operates a used camera gear store online. Uh, so I bought two lenses. I bought my own uh, 28mm lens f2.8 from the company Ultra. I don't know this company. The lens seems fine, but the company seems cheap because uh, it's not a name that I know compared to the other lens I bought, which is a Sigma. And the lens model is the Zoom Alpha. And it's a 35 to 135 millimeter focal length. And it also has macro capabilities when it's set at 135 millimeter. And it also has a variable aperture from 3.5 to 4.5. Uh, so for sure, when you're at 135, the aperture is a bit closed down. As I mentioned multiple times in the middle of the SRT section, I love this camera. But when I received my first roll that I shot through it from the lab, I discovered an issue. <laughs> and this light su suffered from light leaks. And that was my first experience with light leaks. And I guess one of my first difficulties that I'd encountered uh, with film photography. I had some before, again, uh, certain certain moments because of the um, focus free of the arm. And I ended up trying to focus below one meter and forgot, forgetting that it cannot focus under one meter because there's no focus element. So I do have certain photos out of focus because I was too close. And again, on, uh, I have a lot of underexposed photos from the first few rolls I shot through the armament because I didn't know how to read light and there's no s computer telling you, oh, you're underexposed <laughs> by a third of a stop. So uh, I discovered uh, a couple of issues for that and one of the fix for that was to download a light meter application, which greatly helped with uh, making sure I do not overexpose or mainly underexpose uh, my film. But, so, coming back to the Minolta SLR with light leaks. There were two important elements. So at that point, I knew that light leaks usually look like red light. And that's usually because the light seals around the door, which are made of foams in most cameras... Through time, they just end up being dust and disintegrates. So you need to clean them, replace them. And usually that's the red light comes from light hitting the back of the film, which makes sense. If it peeks through the door, it's, it's hard for it to hit the front of it. But my problem was I had portion of my film, always the same side. So uh, whether it was portrait image, it was on the bottom right corner and if it was landscape image it would be the top right which if you would do the lens conversion and things like that because the image is flipped and reversed uh it would end up to be when you look at the opening the door and look at the body it would be the bottom left corner that would end up leaking light uh following a couple of threads on the web talking with a couple of people i decided i was already when i discovered that i was already nearly through another roll of film which was fun but at this one I did shoot it from uh, mostly at night or not during daylight too much which meant that in the end even if I put tape around the door uh, I did not discover light leaks on this one so there was something that I did differently um, that meant that with the first roll during the day it would get overexposed in that area and always that area 
of the film the, of the frame and then at night not really after a couple of research people confirmed on the web and talking with people that white overexposed area means that light is hitting the front of the camera and that's when i clicked uh, dismounted the, uh, the lens in the front opened the back of the door went in my closet used out my light on my cell phone on my smartphone put it where the lens should be and looked at the back and guess what i found a hole in the shutter curtain wah, wah. <laughs> so i found the, the light leak uh, and that was quite disappointing because a lot of the pictures while most of them, even if the light leak is pretty small, were pretty amazing. I think the the sharpness on the lens at the image rendering of the uh, Minolta 50mm, the MC 50mm was amazing. I, I, again, I received the scans and I was in love. Like I was, oh my God, I, I'm sure I recall, I, because most of the photos were when we met together this summer to do a photo walk. And I was like, oh my God, I love the photos. And then my heart sank when mm-hmm. I realized that there was a big blob of light on them. And it took me a couple of weeks to figure it out. And I had a saving grace and I brought this camera back to the person that loaned me, so uh, to AJ that I mentioned earlier. And I told them like, hey, here's what I figured out. I told him that I had issues and he was really sorry because uh in the end it was not his I, it was not on purpose that he loaned me a camera that had an issue uh but uh, at the same time i was kind of happy that it's like hey it's not my camera in the end or i didn't lose money for this uh so but at least i gave him like my debugging tools which brings me into one of the difficulties with film photography which is old hardware and reparability <laughs> there hasn't been new cameras released and some might say that even nowadays with digital bodies you it's hard forget to get and i'll name people but like don't i don't have any i didn't have any experiences with this but you can read from any brands like nikon canon sony fujifilm whatever that people have issues with their camera they ask the manufacturer and they are even willing to pay it's like yes i broke it i don't care I'll give you money to repair it. And they even don't want to repair it. They're just like, just go buy a new one. So I am aware that reparability, even with digital bodies, is sometimes problematic. But at least, A, the brand exists. And B, they shall be supporting the product they currently sell. Most of these bodies, ignoring this one that is launched in 66 from a company that in theory no longer exists because Minolta got bought by Sony, you can imagine that reparability might be problematic and is somewhat getting problematic. For sure, the SRT101 is uh, a model that was produced in a quite high volume. So there's still a lot of like parts availability or people can recuperate parts from other bodies. But in the end, for the better or the worse, less and less people know how to repair those cameras because a lot of them have been out of production for years. Most people as said they either died that made those cameras or are of old age. Uh, and it means that you have to deal with old hardware when you do film photography. And that's something you need to be conscious of and you need to be aware of the anxiety that it can create because you rely on this hardware. You rely that when you go out shooting, you want to make sure you always have the best photo, but you might be in the middle of a photo shoot and then pff, 
your shuttle stops working and you're you more or less end up with a dead weight that you have to ship to the US because I'm sure there's people in Canada too. So, but you have to ship to somebody outside of your city because there, you cannot go to the next store like you used to be able to, to get it repaired. So that was my first experience with having mechanical problems with a camera. And I'm not saying it's, is cooling me off. Uh, but now I do better understand what people are saying about a lot of cameras. And luckily for me, this one was even a mechanical one. So in theory, its shutter curtain could be replaced by somebody that is skilled if the part exists. And I'm sure the parts can be salvaged by a, another camera that has a something else broken, but a good curtain. But a lot of people mentioned that like most point and shoot rely on electronics from the 70s and 80s and 90s. And when those breaks, there's nothing it can do. It's just broken. You're lucky if those capacitors haven't gone bad yet. Yeah, and we'll talk about this because I did buy a point and shoot from 95. Uh, and this one I did buy. Uh, so yeah, but I think it is something that could, that would cool down a lot of people. And that would explain why, even if there could be issues with fully mechanical cameras, that's why a lot of mechanical cameras these days have some price hikes because people are clicking for them if they're investing three four five a thousand dollars in a body and a used body they want to have something that is reliable and i think too there is an aspect of if it's a body that is from let's take an example from 66 it has more or less 66 nearly four nearly 60 years at this point Ah, uh, wow. Uh, math is hard. Math is hard tonight, but, uh, it's nearly 60 years and people rightfully so. And I would be, uh, I would tend to think like that too is it becomes, I don't want to say a jewel, but it becomes an important object in your life that you can. And I don't own it or I don't plan to own it. Say, Oh, I'll give it down to my kids. <laughs> but I think for a lot of people, it is more like if I take care of this subject, I'll be with me till my old age. It's like an old watch. Exactly. That's why I, come, I said Joel too. If an old watch could be a good comparison. Is If it's taken care of, it could stay forever. And I think that's why those are uh, possibly many getting harder to get. But again, uh, yeah. So that's kind of my tangent into uh, old hardware and repairability. Um, so I kind of, I'm a bit more careful. Again, I didn't buy this. It was a loan. Uh, so it was easy for me to say, Hey, if this happened on the first roll, on the first frame that I put in, so I didn't break it. And don't get me wrong. Like AJ was like really like feeling bad that he was loaning me a camera that he didn't know was broken in the end. And that it was giving me maybe a bad impression of film photography, which in the end I was like, you know what? No, like, don't worry about that. It was not. It just sad because I really loved this body. Yeah. So when uh, you text me about uh, your uh, Digicam alerts on eBay, uh, <laughs> I am reminded or I remind you that I have alerts for uh, SLR bodies for me. Uh, to be clear, I don't have alerts. What I do do is I... I do have alerts. <laughs> okay. I frequently do run searches and I add things to my wish list. And if I get an offer, it's very hard to resist. <laughs> yeah. 
I feel you. I feel you. Okay, next camera, another loan too. Uh, it's the Minolta iMatic Seven, and this one is even older. It's from '63. Oh wow! Uh, and this one is quite special, and that's why um, AJ was le- loaning me those two cameras because this is a rangefinder with a fixed lens, so it has a forty-five millimeter focal length, f one point eight. And the shutter speed offered by the iMatic 7s goes from bulb, again, to one, five, one five hundredth of a second. Uh, this one, uh, knowing that, I know certain people don't like that people call the Fuji X100 series rangefinder, but they kind of are rangefinder. Uh, so let me call them rangefinder. But yeah, that was one of the reasons he was loaning it to me. It's like, you know, you have a, a X100 series and you told me you really, really like this camera. So here, I'll loan you a rangefinder. And I think in the end, it was maybe a bad idea to have them both at the same time because it clicks so much with the SRT. <laughs> that I didn't really like the iMatic. And I know one of the problems I didn't like is that both the aperture and the shutter speed settings are on the lens. And in this particular model, one of those rings was pretty easy to turn, which was the shutter speed. And the aperture was a bit more stiff to turn, which meant that I would accidentally change the shutter speed when I wanted to change the aperture. Uh, and that was kind of the the uh, ergonomics of the camera that I liked less. And because it is, I think it's called a leaf shutter, but it's a different shutter mechanism. Uh, it, the sounds that the camera makes were <laughs> way different. It was way more silent. Again, great for street photography to just like blend around. You don't like you don't look apart. But um, in the end, it's not a camera I vibed with uh which was interesting because i really enjoy shooting it with black and white film i think the style of camera plus back black and white kind of make for uh make for a good combo i i should say um also this is the camera i've encountered light leaks with and the typical ones that uh, comes from the back of the door, uh, which is funny because I encountered them a bit, uh, on my first roll of black and white, uh, which impacted certain friends. And then the second roll I shot through it, which was, uh, color, Kodak gold, so color film, uh, all the frames were okay. And even no night light leaks, uh, on the film itself uh, around the frame. So I was pretty surprised. So I guess it's, uh, I was holding it wrong, a kind of problem. But in the end, uh, this one, I don't really regret sending it back. I, I kind of feel that a rangefinder camera, I would not want, but it's a camera I would like to have in my lineup, but maybe not this exact model is kind of what I ended up with uh, thinking of. Last camera is the point in truth I was mentioning that if it dies, I'll cry because I, <laughs> I didn't spend a lot of money, but I did spend a lot of money for 90, from a point in truth from 95. Let's put it this way. And it is the Ricoh R1S. So this point in shoot was available from 1994 to 1998. Uh, and the, so it, you can also find it as the R1. 
uh, the S in R1S means my interpretation is silver and the information I found on the web also says silver because when it got launched in 94, there was two different colors. Um, this one is pretty interesting. So it's a 30 millimeter F 3.5 fixed lens with a paranormal panorama mode, which means that there, when you turn it on, there's flaps that comes, uh, that turn, that protrudes through the lens to make a 12 to 36 millimeter frame and not a 24 to 36. So it's not using the full width of the film to make a panorama frame. It's just covering part of the film to give you that. So in theory, you do have less quote-unquote resolution or less precision with that. Um, and it has shutter speed that range from two seconds to one fourth hundredth of a second. Uh, and it has a special mode where it can defocus or move its fixed length and make it be a 24 millimeter that is stuck at f8 and it offers a wide panorama. So it kind of more or less fakes a 24 millimeter, uh, with it. Uh, and this one requires a lot of light because it's stopped down at its most. Uh, stop down level for the lens. This point and shoot I love a lot. It's tiny. It's about the size of an iPhone, to be honest. So it's really pocketable. It's a bit thick. It's about, I'm kind of doing the test right now. Uh, it's about the thickness of two iPhones and my iPhone is in a case. So, and I'm not looking at the camera bump. So it's about the thickness of two iPhones. So compared to, and if you've Google photos and I'll have a link in the show notes from the, the Canon, uh, SureShot Multithely, the SureShot Multithely is a beast. Like it's a plastic <laughs> beast, but it's a beast still. It's not heavy. It's just, it's bulky. It's, it looks like an 80s deck. Uh, the R1S has been pretty shrink, shrunk down. So that is a camera that since I bought it, like it goes with me everywhere, like because it's so yeah. easy to put in a pocket, put in a jacket pocket and a coat pocket at this point because it's winter. Uh, it is the camera I use to shoot all the photos, uh, during the Christmas season. Uh, and it, 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 my plan for it is this kind of everyday camera. So I've been shooting a lot of ISO 800 films with it because of that, because it might be inside, which also means that again, this is why I mentioned uh, earlier that film requires a lot of light because <laughs> even in bright days inside, you need the flash for it to kind of work or you need to put it on a tripod. So you need to be aware of that. The main issue I have with this camera, and I was aware before <laughs> buying it, because this is the younger brother or the, the, the young or the smaller brother of another Ricoh camera called the GR1, mm -hmm. uh, which you might know because of the GR3, which is now a digital point and shoot camera that is really popular with street photographers. Um, and they do have a tendency to break. Even the, the, the GR1 is even worse from my, from my understanding because part of the, ca the casing is really badly made. So those could break down around the viewfinder. The R1 is not, as long as that, ex the exact same plastic portion for the viewfinder area. So it's less prone to this. But the main issues with 90s Ricoh point and shoot is their LCD displays are not really long lasting. 
So they usually suffer from uh, segment bleed, I think, uh, mm-hmm. or pixel bleed. Uh, so more or less certain segments of the LCD stops working. And again, they're not generic LCDs. So they do have specific icons that lights up in them, which means that you can only replace them with another one from another camera because you guessed it, it's no longer produced. Um, trying to find one either online for cheap or that, uh, for that or even in stores meant that the, the LCD would have a problem. Luckily for me, uh, one of the place where I go develop my film, so my film lab had one uh, recently, which was not cheap. Uh, I think I could have had a better deal by getting it from one of those eBay Japanese store where they have everything in film cameras or even digital cameras. Um, mine has a good had a good mix of most of the SLD works. The main issue was that the last digit for the frame counter is the one that suffers the most from this uh, segment bleeding so I can like if I turn it out right now I can see that I have 20 something frame remaining because this one counts down but with the number I'm not sure I do have an app to track and I think I'm off by one frame so I know it's either 24 or 25 Uh, but if you can imagine a 4 being drawn on a LCD 9 segment display, I only see the left side of uh, the 4, so the, the, the vertical bar that puts uh, on the 4. So it's really weird, but I do see the 2 correctly. And more importantly than the frame count for me is that this camera has different modes. And those those modes, whether like, for example, flash off flash on for night mode or it add like um, forced single point focus or forced uh, uh, they call it landscape mode which forced the focus to be at infinity it has also um, interesting night mode not only for the flash but that would take a couple of I think it takes a double exposure at different speeds uh, at night uh, and those are all icons on the LCD and those all work. So that's kind of why I was like, okay, I'll buy it. Uh, <laughs> even if, um, even if when it dies, I'll regret it. But in theory, at that point, I'll have memorized all the order of the menus and the buttons and things like that. So this one plans to stay in the family for a while. Uh, I don't plan to get rid of it. It, it will be kind of my uh, go-to uh, point and shoot. Uh, and even then, I'll come back onto that later. But the uh, Canon has a dedicated project for the remainder of the year, so I'll not. I won't shoot too much of the Canon because of a dedicated project I have for it. Any questions about the bodies itself, camera? Uh, the cameras, Yannick? I'm really curious about this Ricoh camera because it's the only one I haven't seen. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm very curious to see how big it is because I thought it was going to be about the same size as the the Canon. So oh no 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 no! If it's okay. not, I'm especially interested. Yeah, and it it is surprising how how small it is, knowing that the Canon and I'm looking at them right now. So, uh, knowing that the Canon was released in '88. Mm-hmm. And the Ricoh was released in 94. So they are six years apart, which could mean that they were developed more or less around the same time or a couple of years apart. But we're not talking like Destiny's. We're talking like 
maybe five at worst case. Yeah, and, but like the think of just the evolution in technology there was in that time. It was incredibly fast compared yeah. to the incremental changes we're seeing today. No, I know, I, I know. So that's why it uh, it blows my mind, to be honest, and that's kind of why I was uh, drawn through the Ricoh cameras. Uh, which kind of bring me on a small tangent about Ricoh. I was not planning to talk about this, but Pentax, so Ricoh Pentax is more or less the same company now. Uh, my understanding is it was not the same when the Ricoh R1 was around. Ricoh was its own company, but don't quote me on that. But I uh, think that's true. Yeah. yeah. Pentax uh, did announce that they are restarting. So they're starting a new project. They don't know if they, it's not an announcement of a product. They're just announcing a new project to bring back film camera in this day and age. So they've decided that before, and literally, they didn't say it this way because Japanese people are so like polite and kind, <laughs> but they don't, they, they, if you read between the lines, it meant like our old engineers are about to die. And if they die, we'll lose the knowledge with them. So before that happens, we need them to talk to the new engineers. Uh, but. Getting aside, that's what they've announced. They announced that they're planning to do a lineup of film cameras. They're starting a project to get there. And they want to start by developing a new point and shoot. They they say an automatic SLR, but what a lot of people have interpreted this as is more of a electronic hole, uh, electronic SLR. So a camera that can be shot automatically that will do automatic exposition for you that I might have a couple of manual modes but all of its parts are driven by electronics and then with the hope to get to a fully mechanical SLR and that has blown a lot of people by surprise it took a lot of people by surprise like literally a company in 2022 announcing a project to build new film cameras again if you look at the film camera news recently, Leica, which was still building film cameras to this day, have announced that their well-loved Leica M6 film camera is getting a re-release. So if you have a deep wallet, and a pretty deep one, because we're talking about Leica here, you can put your name on the list and wait for five years, like trying to buy a new electric car these days uh, that is not a Tesla uh, and at some point get a newly made Leica, cam- Leica M6 camera uh, from 2023 so pretty interesting news and hopefully uh, the reason I bring this up is talking about Rico, uh, Rico and then also talking about reparability and new hardware I hope this will bring uh, some kind of breath of fresh air in the market especially if uh Pentax is able to make something happen. They're not promising that it will. That's They've been pretty adamant about this. But if they do, they're going to be an interesting player in the years to come because of that. I'm honestly not that surprised that it's uh, Ricoh and Pentax. Mostly the Ricoh end of things for me because I think Ricoh has such a a dedicated film community around the GR models of cameras right. that you sort of, they want it. And it's, it goes back to what I said about like the Japanese market being this weird ecosystem for really niche products that wouldn't really work elsewhere. Like, I don't know if they're necessarily going to release it internationally. Uh, so temporary expectations, 
Possibly. Uh, I'm sure if they only ship it in Japan, a lot of people will figure it out and get one. Yes, I'm, I'm sure they'll figure it out, but I'm also very much willing to believe that it's going to be incredibly expensive. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, we can open this tangent because I brought this up, but the fact that they want to start with a point-and-shoot... Yeah, but that that could mean anything. That could be like disposable point and shoot. Well, no, not disposable because it's Pentax, but like yes. it, it could be like low end point and shoot. But then, like, why the fuck would you do that? No one's going to buy that. I think you would be wrong because um, a big trend right now about film photography is, and we'll come when I talk about stocks, but the uh, film, the, the cinema industry is keeping Kodak alive by mm-hmm. asking them to produce cinema film or motion picture film and on the consumer side my understanding from reading on the web so take that with a grain of salt is that disposable cameras are keeping the consumer side of things alive and a lot of people of our age or younger than us my understanding is yes at some point they might end up buying a used cameras but they're a bit like me. They start on those cheap bodies. That's why the, that's why I mentioned the Kodak Ektar H35. This is a film camera. Yes, it's Chinese knockoff. Like it's a <laughs> Chinese manufacturer that just paid for the Kodak name. Like we can talk about Kodak and its weird politics. Like Kodak is weird these days, but it's still a new camera launched by Kodak in 2022. Yeah. And at the market for like kind of consumer, generalist and things like that so i think for that the the starting with a point and shoot makes sense like people might want to just like buy a camera and don't care about it but it just works and that's i think what is a point and shoot to me no i agree that there's like a a definite need for point and shoots but i think the problem with that is that i think a lot of people are buying disposable cameras not necessarily because they want to use a disposable camera but because it's the easiest way they have to buy film easily fair so, uh, and i think you're correct and i that's why i hope that the this point and shoot and i said i hope right i hope that it's not too expensive yeah see my, my headcanon is that the point and shoot is a gr a new film GR, right. and then you've got yes. your pro SLR stuff for the enthusiasts. And all of this is an enthusiast play because it's the Japanese market and that's what they do. Right. But if you think about it, the GR is not really a consumer point and shoot. It's really... No, no, uh, it's an enthusiast uh, point and shoot. Definitely. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's as a small market. So, again, even if it's a $3,000 point and shoot... It will sell like hotcakes if it ever comes out. But right I, now we can I mean, they literally this. make limited versions of the GR uh, digital cameras with yes. special colors that sell for $2,500 and people still buy it. So, I mean... There. I was reading this week. There's yet another new one. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, but, hey, it, it's the, the GR3 seems pretty interesting as a camera. So, hopefully, we'll have a GR analog again or... Something like that. We shall see. Right now, we can just only dream. So let's end this tangent about Pentax and let's talk film stocks. Are you ready? My wallet isn't. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, I w- so can to um, 
before we conclude and go into what's the future for me with analog photography, I want to discuss film stocks. And that's also the section where we'll look at pretty pictures. And I hope you find them pretty because I shot them. So uh, if you have a good podcast player yes. uh, you, you'll see it in the, the chapter art uh, if you have Apple Podcasts you'll see it in the show notes I guess I think <laughs> Apple say... Podcasts works fine now I think it's just okay. like if you use some weird Android shit that doesn't support I was MP3 trying to chapter. say a, sh- a shitty podcast pl- I was trying not to say a shitty podcast player but well, now you're making me say a sh- shitty not podcast I said player. it I'm entirely responsible these are not the thoughts and prayers of Luc Olivier <laughs> no it is I'm just trying to be kind <laughs> uh, but yeah so um, so yes so uh, please look at the chapter art or at the links I'll put in the show notes I'll have include uh, five photos of uh five stocks uh that i shot and they'll we can be the kind of background conversation of what i liked about those different film stocks because as i mentioned in the four reasons film stocks for me is image rendering the way colors are rendered or black and white is rendered is why i love film so much and that's why i fell in love with it like i've mentioned in a previous photo episode that I'm pretty bad at photo management and I not the one that wants to learn that I'm curious but I'm not the one to spend like three hours working on photos like I remember in December when I did a, a studio shoot and I had to prepare the photos for the viewing of it like after like 30 minutes an hour I was like oh it's full it's good I'm in the groove and then after like two hours of like going through the photos and preparing them like I get bored so surprisingly for a lot of people like post-processing for me is not great and even when i was when i was when i am shooting with digital bodies i'm always trying to find a way to have my exposition my colors and the look i want in body if i can be straight out of camera that's why i want to have and with all the advantages and disadvantages of film that's what i like about it is it's opinionated and you have to deal with it because that's that. Yes, you can do post-processing on the scan, but that's not what I want to do again. I want a look baked in the image. I have an interesting question for you that I want to save for after we've gone through all the film stocks. Perfect. And I will try to remember what it is. <laughs> <laughs> Write it down. Yeah, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> Perfect. So uh, I'll go through the six stocks. And then we'll go through a different order. So the, uh, so I've shot 10 rolls in 2022 and they were short in this order. So I shot Kentner Pan 400, which makes sense. It is the black and white film that came with the Armin reusable camera. I also at that time bought Fujifilm Superior Extra 400. I shot Kodak Gold, Id- Ilford HP5 Plus. Reflex Lab 800T, and last but not least, uh, and sadly for this one, I don't have any pictures that I can share because they're uh, family members, so I don't want to put them on the web, but Lomography Color 800. So we'll talk about the first four, uh, first five stocks, and we will start with the color stocks because life is better in color, or is it? So uh, Fujifilm Supria Extra 400, as its name mentioned, 400 is for ISO 400. So it's a pretty middle of the road sense, like P 
speed for film, so it's pretty sensible to light. It is a daylight balance film, which means that you should expect to have good colors or proper white balance with daylight or 500, 5000K or 5000 yeah, 5, Kelvin light. Uh, it is considered a consumer film, so part of the rare film that Fuji still makes these days. Uh, and that's another sad moment. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We we can talk about we can talk about film prices, and I came like a lot to film because of the film simulation and things like that with Fuji, which has a shit ton. And then you realize Fuji still makes like not even a quarter of all the films they simulate. Like it's so sad, but. Mm-hmm. At least I like uh, Fuji Superior Extra. So Yannick, you better. Uh, <laughs> so Yannick, I would invite you to go into the uh, zip I sent you and select the Superior 400 photos, which yeah, our I've listener had it open will since see. you mentioned the Superior Perfect. 400. So I'm looking at it right now. So one thing I liked is that uh, 400 is quite flexible. <clears throat> and what I mean by flexible, I haven't done push and pull processing. We'll talk about it in a future episode. I guess, but <laughs> all of the film are shot at box speed, which means I set all the my light sensor on my iPhone app, or when they are put in a point and shoot, they read the DX coding on the cartridge on the roll can. So it means that they will be uh, they would be processed at 400. So the exposition the, the exposition time will be for ISO 400. So you can see. And the photos, a nice chair in the middle of leaf in the Montreal autumn. Fujifilm is pretty known for their vivid green and magenta colors. And I think it, you can see that a lot. Surprisingly enough, uh, I, I have a lot of photos with this film. This film is A, the first color film I shot. And B, uh, I shot three rolls of it part of the 10 rolls I shot. So, and the other comparison, and we'll talk about it later with Kodak Go, like they seem pretty like uh, apparent. The places where I see those green cast is you'll see them in this photo near the windows of yeah. the building in the shadow portion of the image. So when the, what I realized with Fuji Superior Extra 400 is the highlights are really warm, but the shadows or the midtones tend to skew through a green hue. So it's a look you have to like, I think. Uh, I won't include this photo because it's a photo of a friend, but I think I sent it to you, Yannick, but a, a, a common friend of R, when I shot a photo of her with a flash uh, in the middle of the night, uh, you do see that the uh, non-lit diarrhea next to her without the flash is having this green hue to it. So you need to be aware of this. Uh, People tend to mention that Fujifilm negative color film are really well suited for more landscape or more green so forests and things like that but i've shot it inside outside in the city mostly and it is a pretty flexible film it's also quite cheap uh right now and my, that's my tip please don't go spam the walmart near to my place <laughs> but uh the cheapest at Walmart. I know you want to encourage and then shop at local film store. 
I do that. But again, film is expensive. If I can save a couple of bucks on rolls, I'll try. So Walmart has it for $27 here in Canada for a box of three rolls of 36 exposition, which makes it for about 25 cents per exposition. So it's pretty cheap. Good film to start. Again, it looks good in the Armin. It looks good in my point and shoot. It is sadly not a film I shot in the SLR, the, the Minolta's, any of the Minolta's, whether it's the SLR or the Rangefinder. Uh, but again, I already have a three pack again in my, uh, film inventory uh, for that. Superior also has a smaller brother, uh, Superior 200, uh, which could also be known as C200 in the US. Um, uh, I haven't shot any of it just yet, again, uh, because it's ISO 200. That's a, one of the main differences, just less sensitive to light. Uh, that will be a a film you would like to shoot more outdoors during the daytime versus uh, versus an ISO 400, which is more flexible. And even Fujifilm on the box says like they have a scale where they compare uh, Superior 200 to Superior Extra 400, and they kind of say like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's okay for inside, but uh, Superior 400 is the more common stock for that. Okay. Any comments about Superior 400, Yannick? It looks like what I remember Fuji photos looking like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing I want to do at some point, and I'm kind of waiting to have a SLR again to do that, is I do have two rolls of Velvia 100. So mm-hmm. color positive or color slide film. Uh, color slide Minus, I think, is a bit more finicky for its exposition, uh, which is interesting, by the way. Uh, when you try to find your exposition parameters for color negative film, the general consensus of exposing for your uh, for your highlights when you use digital is the same thing you should do for color positive or color slide film, not color negative, because color negative film is pretty flexible for the highlights. Uh, even in this area, you still see quite a lot of details if we still talk about the uh, broken chair, uh, but we look next to the building where the sun hits. It's not clipping to white. And I know it's weird to say clipping to white. I'm using my digital terms <laughs> here, I know, but there's still details and uh, you can still make out there's a cloud with a light blue sky and you can see the difference between the light blue sky and the cloud in this allied area. So uh, learning how to expose color negative film is quite interesting. And I'm pretty eager to dabble into color slide film at some point to just see that. But I really want to have a camera where I control the exposition parameters for it at first. And I'm really eager to see this uh, film. But again, I'm kind of... <laughs> I want to shoot it in the summer, uh, in the winter, but I do see that it tends to blue tones. So with with the snow and everything, I've seen photos of it with snow in it from the Analog Resurgence uh, YouTube channel, and the photos were pretty blue. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm kind of like, oh, maybe I, want, I should wait for the summer, but then I'll end up with too much shit to do in the summer, or too much film to shoot in the summer. So uh, we shall see. Okay, and Nick. Time to talk about Kodak Gold. Yeah. Uh, the other um, 
the other consumer film I shot uh, in the past five months. So main difference between Kodak Gold and Superior 400 is that Kodak Gold is not mentioned in name, but you can assume it's Kodak Gold 200. So it's ISO 200, and it's also a daylight balance film. Um, and as it names mentioned, Kodak Gold loves warm tones. So whether it is a fully bright Sunday or it's a overcast day, you're photos will make it look like it's a sunny day all the time and that's quite a different look from uh, superia uh i have shared the photos that i shot of you and our, our photo walk mm-hmm. uh, the one that you currently see of the yellow flowers with the green and with the old building is from me walking around in montreal but again i duly remember that this was not a sunny day it was pretty overcast and looking at the current photo you cannot like if i didn't tell you it was a, a sun uh, overcast day you wouldn't think you would just maybe think that this photo was taken maybe in the shade during a sunny day but not in an overcast day so this skew to warmer tones is really fun um and it kind of puts this i think it, it is a good way to bring this memory look to photos. Like I look at this photo, it doesn't look old. It just looks like if I think about a previous memory or a previous just event in my life, like I could rem- I have flashes of images that look like that. Mm-hmm. And that's what I like about uh, Kodak Gold. It's a bit more expensive than uh, the Fujifix Superior for the main reason that right now the best deal I can find is for a box of three, but not a, of 36 exposition, but 24 exposition. And yet again, it's a good friend's Walmart. So in Canada, it's for about $24, which brings it for about 33 cents per exposition. So it's a bit more, it's a bit more expensive, but again, uh, Superior 400 and Kodak Gold would be your cheap color options. For sure, if you can find them, because that's the fun part of color film, 35 millimeter color film these days is it is in short supply everywhere compared to black and white film. So if you don't mind shooting black and white, which I think you should not mind shooting black and white, uh, that's like when I go to photo stores in town to stock up on film, like there's always stock and a shit ton of it for black and white, but color 35 is always out of stock or in low supply. I like how pronounced the grain is in this one. Like, even though it's a lower ISO film than uh, the Superior from earlier, the grain is quite pronounced, and I think it looks really good in this. Also, the the color pop of the flowers is super wow. Yes, you're correct. Uh, I did not realize, but you're correct that the grain is a bit more pronounced, and that's interesting for an ISO 200 image. Yeah, it's probably not going to come across very well on like the podcast size art, but uh, no. But if you open me, the link, you might. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, let me look. Okay, and interesting. I just want to look quickly in my. So, uh, and just for a perspective of look, something I forgot to mention. So the image, uh so I shot the Superior 400 image with the Canon Sure Shot okay. at using its 35 millimeter lens, 
and the Kodak Gold image was you it was shot with the Minolta iMatic Seven. Yeah, that makes sense. So uh, I, I was looking just maybe because lens, but again, uh, you could see maybe less sharpness with the superior image I chose. Uh, but in the end, uh, no. Uh, and last but not least, you're correct. I love the yellow pop on this mm-hmm. image. So nice. Next up, last color stock I want to talk about, and it's called Reflex Lab 800T. And I bring this one up, and Danik knows about this one because not this photo, but part of this role was shot with him, and I had mm-hmm. a lot of fun because, or a lot of problems <laughs> because it was not properly loaded for the first few frames. That's true, meant, I forgot about that. Which meant that I didn't shoot too much photos in Trois-Rivières yeah, during the nighttime with it. But as its name suggests, it is an ISO 800 film, and the T stands for tungsten because it is white balance for artificial light, or 3200 Kelvin is my recollection for it. The reason I bring this up is A, because it's an 800 ISO, a uh, film which uh, those are getting pretty rare in the color space. Uh, Yannick, I remember we were fond of the uh, Fujifilm Natura 1600 yeah. ISO that I know you were aware of and uh, I was uh, remembering because I was looking on the web and people were mentioning it. But uh, with me, which means that those options are really well suited. Again, first, because they're like artificial light white balance and be pretty sensitive to light they're really well suited for night photography and as you can see here it's a pretty nice photo of the uh, Jacques Cartier bridge here in Montreal which has a couple of weird uh, (laughs) hollow effect on the photo and that's on purpose because Reflect Lab, Reflex Lab is my understanding uh, is it's a Chinese company, but it is part of a more recent trend to provide more 35 millimeter color film to photo uh, to f- photo people because in the end this is Kodak Vision 3500 T respooled inside 35 millimeter canisters for usage in still photography. So it is a cinema film, a motion picture film with one of its characteristic altered. It has its ramjet or annihilation layer removed. And what do we see in the image I chose? A lot of annihilation, halo effect on the highlights. And that is well known from this transformation that happens on motion picture film by removing its ramjet layer so it's a really thick layer at the base of the film which allows um allows or allows but it blocks light for reflecting from the backing plate of the film door and then hitting the back of the film and then you say hey luco you talked about light hitting the back of the film should give a red weird hollow effect yes it's kind of a light leak and that's what trying to fix is light rebouncing inside the camera which is really important for motion pictures because they want to control the light that is captured uh another company and i haven't shot their film just yet but should give the same results as this because it's still kodak vision 3500t used in the end uh, still in the US is well known for this similar process of taking Kodak film, respooling it in 35mm canister, 
and they have a product called Sinistel 800T for that exact purpose. So um, those products, to me, are an acquired taste. <laughs> I like this elation effect. One, I want to have it. Uh, this comes from a photo walk at night in Mon- in downtown Montreal, so in the old port. I also have, we have a Ferris wheel in the old port, and I also have um, photos of it, and it's a nice... It's an acquired look. Like you really need, and if you go on Sinistil's uh, Instagram page, for example, you'll see that some people like it a lot, others not so much. So you really need to be aware that when you shoot this type of film, those elation effects will happen in the highlights, uh, whether it whether it is at night or during the day. Um, Reflex Lab and Sinistil also have a 400D. Film stock that I haven't shot yet, um, which is for ISO 400 and D4. Sinistil so said it's dynamic, but in theory, it's daylight balance film. Um, so, and you can see those same elation effect in the highlights during the day. I'm really curious to see what that will give as an effect because I can't really envision it in my head. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty eager to. I have currently four rolls of Sinistil uh, 400D. Um, I'm possibly looking, maybe down the road this year, to R2 import. Uh, and again, uh, Reflex Lab shit throughout the world. But again, because it comes directly from China, it might take a bit more time. Uh, also, it's a bit cheaper. Again, you have to deal with USD, the US dollar, not yeah. buying Canadian. Uh, because uh, Sinistil film is available at local Montreal stores. So uh, you can buy it without import fees and things like that. So pretty eager to shoot real Sinistil, even if I've done that with this Reflex Lab, uh, and also shot, shoot their uh, more Daylight Balance 400D film, which is pretty recent. I think it, it released in October officially. There was a... I think they were on Kickstarter, but there was a... like financing campaign uh, and that started to ship to the world in the fall okay are you ready for black and white yes Kentmare Pan 400 Um, as I mentioned first film I ever shot again it is also a consumer film Uh, again didn't mention it for Reflex Lab but it's a cinema film so it's not really consumer film uh, so i think it's it goes without saying but fyi uh because it's a motion picture film it's it's in own category so there's no consumer versus professional film like with uh still photography so with catmare pan 400 it is a consumer film because it's a cheaper alternative to what uh ilford or Kentmare and Ilfer are brands of Armin technology for their film stock. So Kentmare is their cheaper brand for uh, Ilford. My recently Ilford released Kentmare 100 and 400 for the medium format, so for 120 film. And they did explain a bit more carefully the difference between Kentmare film and the equivalent Ilfer film. And they do mention that they contain less silver, so that's why they're cheaper. But they're still using the same or similar processes that they do for HP5, which we'll talk in a bit, or other Ilford film. So while I say it's a consumer film, it's kind of a just 
a cheaper professional film in the end because they're using the same processes as their iron film in their factory in the UK. Uh, the image I've included of my lovely cat, uh, is a photo that I shot. Oh, I forgot to mention with the Reflex Lab. That was shot with the, uh, Minolta SRT 101 and with my Sigma 35 to 135 millimeter lens. Um, so yes, yeah, so bring, going back to Kenmare, what, what I was about to say is this was also shot with the Armand reusable camera. So if you look at the bottom area of the image, especially the bottom left corner, you see that it's pretty blurry and it's because <laughs> it's too close to the camera, literally. But even if you look in the corners, even if the door, which was maybe about 1.2, 1.3 meters away from me, you see that the image is not the sharpest. So that's what the was the effect I was talking about where the lens is the sharpest in the middle and then the rest is somewhat blurry to a blurry mess depending of the situation. Also, this photo is from your first roll of film, right? Yes. So it is. Kent Mayer is my first roll of film I ever shot and I only shot one roll of the two that I've included. So it is really from the first first. Um, after my first roll, I came out of saying that Kent Mare Pan was not really contrasty as a black and white film. And doing my research, like Ilford considered it kind of a contrasty uh, black and white. The issue I mentioned, why I mentioned this is what I realized by doing a bit more black and white, whether it was digital or analog, is I like my blacks to be blacks and I like my whites to be whites in a black and white image. I want to have a big contrast between the highlights and the shadows. And if I look at all the photos I took with Kentmare, um, it's kind of this gray mess. Uh, the photo, this photo that I've chose, I really enjoy of the small patch of light where my cat is just enjoying the summer light here in Montreal. Uh, but I would have enjoy more uh, like the portion of the mat which is not lighted by the window to be a bit darker so i am not sure if it was just a lack of scales because again you're correct it was part of my first role ever or the general look from kentmare 400 i've looked at a couple of other youtube videos where people were using kentmare and it was kind of a gray <laughs> uh, I don't want to make a bad joke, but it was kind of a Fifty Shades of Grey mess a kind kind of film. So I have another role, like I mentioned. I didn't shoot the second role. Um, so I want to shoot it at some point. Uh, but right now, my perception of Canmare is it's not contrasty enough for my taste, for my liking of black and white photography. So gotta shoot the second role and then report back later last but not least i mentioned it multiple times already eight ilford hp5 plus uh again iso 400 film so pretty flexible depending of the light conditions uh this is a film stock that people used a lot and yes a lot a lot a lot i have seen many many rolls of that in our freezer as a child (laughs) (laughs) yes and i have a funny anecdote about that too Uh, uh but yes and I only shot one roll, and this roll and this image comes from the iMatic 7. So that's kind of why I was saying is maybe the aspect that I liked about the rangefinder iMatic was that I think it's 
fits well the black and white look uh, where you would kind of like walk around the city take pictures of everything and nothing like this nice bat being uh, put next to a no parking sign which i did find quite funny that... is this when we went on our photo walk no this is me in montreal oh okay okay because no, no, i saw tr in the window so i thought it was Trois-Rivières, but no it's the it's a um, construction permit in montreal okay <laughs> so yeah so uh but Go back to uh, to go back to what I was saying. It, this was during an overcast day, but you can see that in the windows, you can see that the balcony that we barely see, the blacks are blacks. Below the first uh, balcony, to next to the toilet, there is a black section, and the doors, the door was white, the window frame was white, the toilet is white. It's not just gray shades mm -hmm. and that's what i enjoyed a lot about uh ilford hp5 um another photo on that roll was of the montreal cross so there's a big cross at the top of the montreal here in montreal and for sure it was doing uh i think it was like 1 p.m light in september so the top of the cross was fully like in the highlights the base of it was not with the grass below it in the forest and you could see like clear contest. It was not, again, it's not like cut with a knife. So Ilford is not that. And I have certain black and white film that is that. There's no like, from them it's like either everything is black or white. There's no yeah. gray. So I'm eager to try those types of black and white film. But you do have a great transition, but you do have a great scale of all the shades of from white to black and black to white so this is a film that is pretty that i enjoyed a lot as i mentioned it is well known well used uh, my understanding is you can push this film to 1600 with great results yes a lot of grain but you can make it like it's pretty flexible in its exposure uh on what you can do with this film and it's funny that you mentioned that uh, you've seen this film <laughs> a lot in your freezer when you were young because your dad, as kind as he is, as usual, uh, sent me a note. Oh no, it came, the note came through you for once. Yeah. Usually he's not afraid to send me notes, but, or send me messages, but this time it like, it was during one of our photo walk. He was like, oh yeah, dad told me that he has some photo stuff to get rid of and you take what you want and you say thanks. I'm like, okay, uh, we'll for sure say thanks. Uh, and it was most of his stuff to do a bulk rolling and in the box of like, there was a kind of a dark room bag. There was a bulk roller. There was uh, plastic rolls to bulk roll them through. There was a box of Ilford HP five plus a hundred foot roll box <laughs> that expired a decade ago it was dated i think like 2013 june if i recall correctly yeah and so and it was not open <laughs> so i took it and then i pinged you that as i thank you uh, i really and i really appreciate you giving me this to me uh and i was like by the way uh why didn't use this uh this box <laughs> he's like oh yeah I, want, I wanted to start bulk rolling and it never happened i also have a, a development tank from him uh i think he also had old chemicals of like uh, i told yeah. you mama chemicals can go away like they're pretty old at this point uh and he told me that have fun with this roll 
don't expect anything because this one was not put in the freezer whatsoever. I think yeah. it was just in your basement. So, uh, you might have surprises, but in general, uh, he mentioned that he's not too worried. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I haven't bulk, bulk rolled it yet, but just to give you a perspective on film prices in general. So <laughs> I imagine that this was bought maybe 2011, 2012, possibly maybe 2013 wine it was about to expire i'm going to say 2008 oh that old pretty sure okay because that's the time frame it would have made sense for him to have gotten it so okay because i don't expect like usually uh film has a shelf life of three or four years but again uh, i should i didn't look at the decks oh let me like I, i could know because I have a spreadsheet like, for this. Obviously, I didn't know he had this. Otherwise, I probably right. would have hinted at it. Um, but around the times that he was doing photography heavily enough for this to potentially be in the picture, it would have been around 2008, probably. Okay, that could make sense. Because I bought a roll of HP5 in October, and its expiry date was is March 2026. So it's literally four years from now. Or yeah, a little bit less now. So, okay, that could make sense. That it's within tolerances, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but most of my color frame is about eighteen months to three years. So that's why I was mm-hmm. like, huh. But uh, no, okay. So, wow. Uh, but two thousand eight. There's a sticker of a Montreal, uh, another local Montreal Photoshop uh, photo service. For this box, cost sixty dollars. In whenever your dad bought it, you say two thousand eight. Probably, yeah. Can you guess the price of this exact same box? Because Ilford HP 5 Plus is still available as a stock today. And it's still available in a 100-foot roll. How you showed me, cost? but I don't remember what it is. I want to oh, say like good. 200 bucks. Uh, it's a bit overpriced. So if it was prices right roll, you'd be over. It is 140. Okay, So yeah. more than double. Uh, for the exact same film. So I'm pretty happy about this generous uh, donation from your dad. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I expect to shoot more HP5 in the I years. So. Uh, and again, it's film. So, and so it's film. We, we never know. It's expired already. I put it back in the freezer. Just. Just to air out yeah, the just this giant roll completely taking up your entire freezer. No, it's in the, like a, a lot of my film stocks are in my mini free, my mini fridge okay. from when I was in university. So it's not too bad yet, but it is encroaching into the, the Pepsi section of the fridge and the <laughs> booze section of the fridge, which Tony likes to mention about the Pepsi section being infringed on. Uh, but I digress again. Uh, what I was about to say about, uh, this bulk roll is that because it is expired, and again, I don't want it to throw it out, like just use it and don't care, because it's still film, mm-hmm. but I, I have no plans right now, but I plan to be a bit more courageous, artistic about it. I don't, I don't know the exact word, but, I guess careless. If I make mistakes with this role, if I don't get uh, the um, exact precise amount of 35 millimeter rolls I should get from a 100 foot roll, that's fine too. I'll learn how to bulk roll if I expose too much film because my technique is bad. At least it's not with film I just bought that is super expensive. So 
it will be a great learning tool. And that would be also my first time trying to shoot uh, expired film and try to play with the general rule of remove a stop of lie. Uh, uh, no, assume that the film is less sensitive of a stop per decade. So it would mean <laughs> that it would be an ISO 200 film. Interesting. So I wouldn't be surprised. I will try to shoot it at 400 and see how it looks. Try to shoot it at 200. Why not, uh, right? Yeah, why not? Uh, the Maybe the, the problem with that is I might want to start developing it myself because, again, you don't want to pay too... Like, if you want to do small tests, you might want to do small rolls. Mm-hmm. But the price doesn't change. You go to the lab, you drive a roll, right? So, uh, and I'm not, I don't feel ready to start uh, doing my own development. So we shall see what I'll do uh, with that. But right now it is a prized possession in my fridge that I'm uh, eager to shoot. And I also have another roll of HP 5 Plus fresh from the photo store. Okay, that concludes the film stock section. I hope you enjoyed the photos. Uh, and again, they'll be online somehow. You'll see where they are when I uh, when you look at the show notes when listening to my voice. Last up. Wait, 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 wait. I had a question that oh, I wrote true. down at the start okay, of the you're... section and I had waited. So, yeah, one of the things you mentioned is that one of the things you really like about film is that each film stock has its sort of distinct color profile and personality and stuff like that. And I totally agree with that. And I think it's a really cool aspect of film. However, as we sort of alluded to earlier, there are a lot less film stocks to choose from nowadays than there were previously, uh, especially if you don't want to go into the expired realm of right. film. Uh, do you think that's an issue right now, or are you more or less happy with the selection you've got? I mean, I, I know your film inventory, so clearly, like, you seem to be fine with the options. Um, that is a good question, uh, because it seems that previously uh we used to have more flexibility again uh we could go to 1600 or there was even more iso 800 color film and i think i'm kind of i never lived that so i'm kind of fond of something i never lived through it but Mm -hmm. the stories i hear about those times where there were more stocks uh kind of make me wish i did film photography earlier in my life because of that but the reason that I bought so much film in the past five months, um, to put it in perspective, and I will come back in the last section, which I was about to start, I currently have in my inventory, and I'm looking at my slides to give the exact number, my spreadsheet to give the exact number, 56 rolls of 35mm yeah. film. And they're not of all... I do have a big quantity of three stocks looking at it. Uh, Center Color 100, which is a new respooling of Kodak Aerial, Aerial Surveillance Film. Uh, also known on different names from uh, Electra 100 here uh, in Canada. That's another fun story, but for the later day, uh, importing film from Finland, knowing not knowing that <laughs> a Canadian company would do their same respooling process. That was fun. Uh, I do have at this point six rolls of 800T from Cinestill that I really want to start shooting. Uh, and the other one that I have a big amount of is I have a box of five rolls of Portra 160. And for the rest of the other 
film stocks, it's I have a handful, like three, four maximum, not even. So usually it's like one to three rolls. And that is on purpose. I didn't want to listen to what people say on the web on you should shoot X and only X mm-hmm. because guess what? There's a lot of this. I want to build my own opinion about all of those different stocks. The main issue right now is that because I'm, I don't want to say I'm struggling, but because I'm testing a lot of equipment and I add a lot of variety of hardware, I don't want to burn a, burn a roll of a film that costs twenty dollars plus twenty dollars to develop and scan yeah. on a camera that might have issues. So if something happens, yes, it sucks because I lost good pictures. <clears throat> Let's go back to my story about the SRT one, uh, one hundred one. Uh, but it was a roll of Kodak, of Kodak gold, right? It was not Portra four hundred, for example, mm. which would have been double the price or even more. So my hope, and I guess that's a good segue to the uh, what's in my future for analog photography. But one of the things is, yes, I want to go through my backlog of film because I want to build an opinion on which, which film stock I like. Right now, I can tell you that I follow the advice of you should try to put as much as sensible of a film as you can in a point and shoot because it does help the electronics of a point and shoot to make a good uh, exposition, exposure decision for you. Um, but again, if I know that I'll shoot on a sunny day, I know I'll shoot on a sunny day, right? That's kind of a, one of the big downsides with film is you're stuck with the decision you've made a couple of days ago if you don't shoot a full roll during one set of constraints whether Mm -hmm. it's for the walk and things like that so i hope that by going through my backlog of film is i build my own opinion of what i like to shoot yeah see see that's the thing that to me seems like a bit of a risk because i'd be like well what if i don't like any of them of the few options that are actually like reasonably available like what if i don't like any of them like i i have other issues with film which is why i'm not a film shooter but um (laughs) like that's why i'm sort of more on the even if i take it my photo with like a crappier digital camera i still think like a lot of what is cool about film is essentially just a lookup table fair and you could accomplish similar results and actually either make your own which is exactly what you want which is kind of what i've been trying to do in uh, pixel meter over the years or um just find something that emulates the look you're looking for like uh, i used to have this uh iphone app called film lab that had LUTs for all of the films that film produced and all the other companies did and i just had so much fun going through all of them and like the ones that i like the most don't get manufactured anymore so it's like well what is even the point if i can't shoot the thing that i want to shoot you know so that but maybe that's more of a it's kind of a weird way to be nostalgic about it because i never actually shot the real thing i shot photos on my iphone that i then emulated to a certain type of film but uh yeah there's sort of that going into it part of uh some of the youtube videos i watch uh i mentioned i watch a lot of role reviews where people take photos with a certain stock and then they just give their own opinion one stock i want to shoot but sadly in 35 millimeter is super expensive because it is discontinued but i know it's still 
somewhat readily available. My the lab I use as a fridge, somewhat <laughs> full of it, is uh, Fujifilm Pro 400H. Mm-hmm. The the photos I've seen using the stocks looks amazing, like the look I want. But the problem is, I know it's kind of discontinued. So that might happen. But if we just reflect on the four images I've shared with you today, a lot of the photos I've shot, like ignoring Katmer that yes, maybe I need to do a bit more tests, like the four other stocks are like, there are aesthetics that I enjoy. Mm-hmm. So they might become staple of what I, in a year or two from now, will just buy all the time because that's what I want to shoot. And I've made this lookup table because I know that I've shot all of the stocks that was more or less available. Ah, will I get there at some point? I think so. Uh, is it the goal for next year? Not at all. But mm-hmm. I want to slowly but surely kind of build this. Oh, yeah, I like Kodak Gold because, yes, it's Kodak Gold. But <laughs> I like these other stocks. And I want them to be in my rotation so that next time I go in a trip, for example... I have a couple of rolls of this, these other stocks on top of Kodak Gold, for example, or Fuji Superior 400. So that's kind of my long answer to your question is, yes, but I don't worry about that. Good enough for me. <laughs> okay, so I did mention that, yeah, one of the goal, one of, to go back to the last section. So what's my future with analog photography? Uh, yes, I want to shoot more rolls. Uh, if I if I bring up the number of rolls I shot in 2022, so so in five months I shot ten rolls. If we kind of do the same, the quick math of applying the same logic for a whole year, 25, 30 rolls would make it right. Mm-hmm. And I think it seems an achievable role, uh, goal, uh, knowing that current the current stocks uh, of film stocks is at fifty six. Uh, <laughs> Um, it's kind of making me say, yeah, maybe if I want to buy more film now, I should make the inventory, lower the inventory a bit before I spend more money on buying film. So I have some budget to develop said film, but, uh, we shall see. I'm making no promise on whether I'll not do that. You were uh, saying I was being overly ambitious doing one fighting game tournament a week, but you should be shooting one film roll a week. <laughs> Ah, uh, we shall see. That's we a lot see. of money to develop as well. Uh, let's not do the math even if I am about to do it as we speak. Yeah, you probably shouldn't. It'll make you... It's about $600. Yeah, that's about... Yeah. <laughs> Excluding taxes, just because uh, my lab, and it's also because I asked for TIFF images, even if I'm not doing processing, but I did have a big scan file, so I could lower it if I only were to ask JPEGs, but it's about $20 per tax where I go uh, develop. So, so yeah, so not cheap, but compared to, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it would have been about maybe the same investment on the film itself, too, give or take. So that's that. Uh, I do have a concrete goal, though. Uh, two, I should say. Uh, a, shoot more black and white. Uh, I think this is something that a lot of people are neglecting, including myself, even if I've shot uh, two rolls. But again, out of 10, I only shot two rolls of black and white. Uh, but I feel that with black and white, I need to have, I'll have to have a dedicated body for it. 
which brings it to the problem <laughs> of now buying more cameras. Uh, so, but again, let's not, let's not forget right now, I in theory own three cameras. So the, the Canon, the Ricoh, and for sure the Armin. Uh, but again, I don't have a DS, uh, SLR style or other type of camera. So we shall see what happens with that. Uh, I kind of hinted at that throughout the episode, but the Canon sure shot is on its own kind of yearly project. Uh, so to challenge my composition technique and improve it, I decided to challenge myself with an half frame gold for this year. So I loaded up a roll of Portra 400. First time running, uh, loaded, shooting Portra, by the way, uh, and enabled the half frame mode of the camera and so if we do the math, 72 exposition divided by 12, we're at 6. So the idea is I want to shoot 6 photos per month. But because it is a frame, I want to build a team per full frame. So a uh, quick story about a frame. Like I mentioned, it's half a frame. But when, let's say, you hold your camera in landscape, so in the normal orientation of camera, when you shoot in a frame, the camera is shooting a portrait frame, even if the camera is in landscape. Uh, so to really shoot a landscape frame, you need to rotate your camera 90 degrees and make <laughs> it portrait. Uh, I don't think I'll do too much portrait half frame because the idea is, and I've already asked my lab if they can do that, and they said, yes, you, you choose, you to just tell us what you want to do. They can scan the develop role even if it's shot in half frame, you can they can shot the full frame images. So I really want to have those images where you have two shots on them and that at least two images make of a certain team. For example, the first images I took was both of my cats were in the living room, I think this week, uh, and sleeping f- both of them on uh, in different places of the living room. So I took... Uh, photos of both of them as my first full frame uh for january uh i have no limits i'm not imposing any limits of whether in a month i want to do a team in all those six images or only four per full frame so per two images i'm kind of leaving that to my own creativity but again i kind of want to play with this so that i end up with images with two frames on this under a similar team so overall, that's kind of my three goals. Oh, last but not least, uh, I didn't mention this too much, but what does it mean for me as uh, a digital photographer? Uh, like, uh, am I planning to stop doing that? And the short answer is no. Uh, in the past five months, I still use my digital cameras when they make sense. If I am in a place where I want to learn and have a f- feedback loop a quick feedback loop to learn and learn quickly digital is still the best for this um and that will continue and there are moments that i still want to shoot the the x100s or i need a dslr or i need an slr and right now i have a dslr and it's a body that i have for the last 13 years at this point yeah close to 13 years so it's a body i know uh i'm more familiar with it there's that so i expect to continue to be an hybrid shooter and not a photo and video shooter but the analog and digital shooter for the year to come 
So in the end, I hope that you enjoyed uh, my experiences in analog photography. And in the end, if you do have a film camera that is collecting dust, uh, I hope that this episode will possibly motivate you to shoot a roll of film through it once every blue moon. Uh, and if not, maybe you have a friend. This friend could be me, by the way, <laughs> just saying, uh, that you are willing to give or for sure some of those cameras are quite valuable. Sell, uh, to a friend that will really take care of it and then give it a, sec- a second or third or fourth life after you. So I hope you enjoyed those experiences and I hope it motivated you to do the same with some photography. Cool. You can find all the show notes for the for this episode at limitlesspossibility.net slash 197. Or you can find all of our previous episodes at limitlesspossibility.net. The podcast is on Twitter somehow still at limipo underscore podcast. <laughs> That's, That's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast. We are in discussions to give it a home elsewhere on social media, but we were too busy enjoying our vacation to actually talk about it. So we'll talk about it after we finish recording if we're not going immediately to bed. <laughs> uh, you can also, well, you can find us on Twitter, but I don't think either of us are really being active on Twitter anymore. I still look at it, but again, I don't think we should promote Yeah, I, I look at one account. Um, so I am on the Fediverse at Sakarina at icosahedron.website, and you can find Ducadivier at... At Lukonush, at mastodon.social, uh, because I just do mat- mastodon.social slash at Luko. Uh, you fucked oh, it crap, up. I forgot to... <laughs> Yeah, I fucked it up twice again. Ah, uh, let me look, let me look. I have it written somewhere. It's so uh, simple. Yeah, I know. Uh, it's it's the new year. I have to fuck up an outro. It's ma- at Luco at Mastodon.social or Mastodon.social slash Luco. There will be links in the show notes. And uh, yes. we'll see you in two weeks. See you in two weeks.